Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hey, everyone. We're Carol and David, and we're so excited to welcome you to our podcast. As you can tell, I'm suffering a little bit from laryngitis. Maybe had a little bit of too much screaming last night. I guess that's a good, good answer. I don't know. You sound pretty <laughs> sexy. So everybody, are you ready to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny? Well, you know you've come to the right place because that's what the sexy lifestyle is all about. And David and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be. We sure are. And you know we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and of course, sexual pleasure. And we love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown. And we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because great sex matters and we all deserve it. We sure do. And as most of you know... um, we're here at the beautiful Hito 2 Resort on the Grill Beach in Jamaica. It's a beautiful sunny day here. We're looking out our window, and uh, it's not very windy. The ocean is nice and calm, and we're going to get out there a little bit later. Um, naked? Of course. We're going to be naked. And uh, we've been here since January 15th, and we're hanging out very safely with all our friends who've all tested negative before arriving at the resort. The sun and beach are amazing for the soul, and we're really enjoying all of it right here and now. I think we're living the life, baby. We absolutely are. All right, on with the show. Enough about Hito. We'll talk a little bit more later. So, <laughs> Sarah's laughing. <laughs> so, are you looking to find out more about men's sexual desire? Perhaps you're wondering if all men are supposed to have a high sex drive, crave sex, and enjoy sex more than women. Why is no one talking about men's emotional vulnerability when it comes to sexual desire? On today's show, we're going to bust a number of myths surrounding men and their desire, and we're going to dive deep into how great sex and relationships are suffering from these long-held misconceptions. Absolutely. So first, we're going to take a minute to talk about our top waterproof blanket, because great sex is messy sex, and nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot. So if you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils or silicone lubes to all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket. That's T-O-P, Waterproof Blanket. Great sex starts now. It sure does. I think I'm going to be doing a lot of talking on this show today. Yes. Your voice is <laughs> then I have to say it. All right. You know, we're Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle, and we are super excited to welcome today's special guest. We have Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray, who is a registered marriage and family therapist. She has a PhD in human sexuality, and she's authored the book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. Sarah, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day and being here with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our talk today. Yeah, actually, David's very excited about this topic. I know he's going to do a little bit more of the talking because of my voice, but he's super interested in all of this talk yeah, about of men's show, sex. shows are always focused and talking about female women, sexuality yeah. and women. And we've had some great shows, some great experts, doctors, where we got into men's sexuality. And, you know, men don't know what they don't know. And sometimes they don't even want to know what they don't know yes. because they live with all these preconceived notions, which right. I'm sure Sarah's going to talk about. Right. But before we get into that, Sarah, how has COVID affected you in this past year? 
Yeah, I mean, it is certainly had a, a an impact. There's no question. I mean, we're I'm I'm married. I've got a husband. I've got two young kids. We've spent a good chunk of time, you know, all at home together. Um, you know, schools were closed. A lot of time in close quarters. Um, you know, stepping on each other's toes and um, yeah, just kind of battling the same, um, you know, uncertainties, anxieties, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, low moods, kind of being frustrated with not being able to live life the way mm-hmm. that we're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly had an impact. Have you found that you and your husband have become better communicators, worse communicators, and has someone threatened to kill each other? <laughs> <laughs> no one has threatened one another. So that's wonderful. Um, we are both more introverted. And so I'm actually finding that we fall in that pocket of couples who actually kind of enjoy spending a little bit more time together. I know, you know, life can be very busy. And this has been a chance for us to kind of pull away from being overextended. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been able to kind of spend more time together at home. And for us being a little bit more introverted, I don't think it's taking quite the toll on us, you know, saying goodbye to some of these social engagements and work engagements has actually been quite good for us. We've actually, um, heard, we've actually heard that a lot from a lot, our guests. Yeah. And so yeah. we probably don't realize how busy our lives are until we stop and pause yeah. and, and reflect. So that's cool. Absolutely. We're, um, you know, there's there's kind of both, you know, as a clinician, I see kind of both sides of it. Some people referring to that kind of an impact and others finding they really, really miss those social engagements. That keeps their relationship thriving. And so, you know, it's certainly showing up both ways, but we fall in the, in the mm-hmm. former yeah. Now, um, us being swingers, we haven't done very much swinging over the past year, but we have um, really explored our sexuality, tried some new sex toys, mm-hmm. new places in the house, and we've gotten much closer and, and, and our couple has strengthened over um, COVID. And now, normally, we do work at home together. And we, we were good at not killing each other. <laughs> right. I just keep going, yes, dear, yes, dear. <laughs> but... Um, it's been it's been it's been a good year for us. Yeah, it I would really say. has, and we're Absolutely. we're very grateful okay. for us and our six kids, and everybody's healthy. Now, I know um, you just wrote a blog before we start talking about your book about four ways the pandemic has changed our sex lives. Just quickly mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I have a background in sex research. So anytime that I see a research study that comes out, and particularly now about how our sex lives are being impacted by COVID. You know, that's a, a big focus for my Psychology Today post. So, um, you know, research takes a while to collect, it takes a while to publish. So there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, but essentially, the things that we're finding out so far is that it's really normal for couples' sexual desire, sexual functioning to be taking a bit of a backseat right now. Um, you know, anxiety, uncertainties, you know, moments of depression or kind of lower mood, these are all things that make us feel like sex maybe isn't the most important thing on the on the to-do list. Um, not to mention families that are home together are finding there's less time for privacy. So the, the research is suggesting that most of us are reporting having lower levels of desire, maybe less frequent sex. Um, but one of the more interesting studies that I thought um, that maybe speaks to kind of what you're describing here is some people are also taking the chance to experiment more. It's giving us more time at home to say, you know what, we don't have all these other things pulling at us. Like, is there anything that you want to try sexually that we haven't done before? Um, so there's one study that's just found that people are actually reporting, or some of us are at least are reporting more novelty, kind of introducing new things, trying those things we've always wanted to do and maybe said, ah, why not now? <laughs> and you know, People so. are probably listening to more podcasts and getting more ideas or maybe watching more <laughs> porn, whatever exactly. it might be. Yeah, yeah. exactly, huh. exactly. 
So tell us a little bit about how and why you became a sex educator researcher. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I sometimes have to think like, what was the, the first thing that really kind of hooked me? Um, you know, I, and to be honest, I, I remember being in undergrad and having that first, you know, welcome to, to university talk. And there were these two women on stage who were promoting the Sexual Health Resource Center. And they just struck me as so confident and yet still a little awkward. But like, you know, they were up on stage just giving practical, real helpful information about sex, sexuality. Um, and I just thought, man, like everyone is so hungry for this information. Yeah. And we just need to have more honest, open conversations about it. And so the next day I submitted my application to be a volunteer and I just kind of started immersing myself in every course I could take. I just wanted to learn and, um, you know, be involved in everything from, you know, helping, you know, people get STI tests to, you know, improving their sexual pleasure, talking about sex toys. Um, and, and as I continued, I thought, you know, I just want to research this. <laughs> I just want to kind of get into the nitty gritty. I want to understand and be able to speak to um, you know, individuals and couples, you know, sex lives, you know, what helps us have, you know, higher sex, sex frequency, sexual satisfaction, sexual desire, as a relationship becomes long term. Um, and so eventually, I just committed my academic career to it. Mm -hmm. So I found myself doing a master's and PhD. And here I am today. So, so you're like all in in the world of sex and sexuality, sexual health, sexual pleasure. Did you grow up in a home that um, talking about sex or sexual openness was there in your in your house growing up? Yeah, to a degree. Um, you know, I think my family was very affectionate, loving, warm. Questions that we had were certainly answered, you know, by, um, I kind of joke that the way that my parents approached information was often we'd get like a book, off, you know, like there'd be kind of a book say on the table and like when we were ready to talk about whatever that was, you know, there was space to ask questions. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I would go all the way to very, um, you know, sexually liberal, but it was certainly open. It was, it was like, this is a reality. This is something that can be discussed. And I think that really shaped, um, my comfort level in being able to talk, ask questions and, you know, just engage in that career path. Mm -hmm. And so these days there's been so much discussion about female sexuality because that's kind of the new thing that's in the norm right now, but you decided to go on the other side. So what made you decide to focus on men's desire and their emotional vulnerability? Yeah, no, great question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a cisgendered <laughs> woman. And, and so I was actually starting my career with the curiosity about, you know, my experience what do what does women's sexual desire look like? We know, as you said, that women's desire is complex, and we kind of talk about all the different things that impact women's sexuality. So I actually started my career focusing on on that on women. Um, but over the course of my research, I started to kind of look around and say, "Wow, like all or at least a really good chunk of the research on women's desire or on desire, I apologize, is is on women." Um, and I started to wonder, why aren't we talking about men's desire? Um, why aren't we talking about these more complex pieces of, of men's sexuality? Is it because the assumptions that we make are that men's sexuality doesn't need to be <laughs> studied? Like, is it simple? Is it straightforward? Do we already kind of like know, quote unquote, um, what men experience? Um, and so I thought for my dissertation, I needed to jump in. I needed to get some answers. So I um, set out to interview men about their sexuality and, and their sexual desire specifically and just, and try to discover if some of these stereotypes we have about men's desire being 
high, unwavering, you know, men are always DTF. Um, you know, is that true? Or is that does that resonate? Or maybe are there some differences? No, it's very, very interesting. And so then, of course, you decided to write a book about it. And your book is called uh, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science. <clears throat> maybe you talk about that one. Right. So, so you decided to write a book um, called Not Always in the Mood, The Not New Science of Men, Sex and Relationships. Um, what was the motivating factor to actually sit down and write a book, even though you were already, you know, established as a, a counselor and were helping people? Um, I, I'm just a believer in getting research out to the masses. So, you know, there's kind of that stereotype of like the ivory tower and researchers just researching and, you know, other researchers and, you know, are the only ones who read the manuscripts, right? There's even paywalls to get access to research articles. Um, and so I wanted to write for Psychology Today to be able to, you know, summarize these findings and make them accessible, you know, to, to as many people as possible. And my book was the same idea. I presented at conferences, you know, within my department. People were saying, man, I wish this information was more available. Like, I think people are hungry for a different discourse about men's sexual desire. And so I sought out to do it. And I was great, grateful for, um, you know, an agent and a publisher to take it on. But I just was really um, determined to get this information into more hands and, and normalize you know, men's experiences and have a slightly different discourse about men's sexuality than we typically get to see. And does it reflect your dissertation, the thing that you you did your dissertation? It covers all of those research that you did? Yeah. So for my dissertation, I started out like, call it like a qualitative study and, you know, interviewing men and kind of creating themes. That was very exploratory. I really didn't know what to find. I mean, you kind of asked before why I decided to focus on you know, men's vulnerability. And I mean, I, I guess I'd have to say, I don't know if I necessarily set out to do that. I wasn't sure what I was going to find. By the time I finished my dissertation, I set out to do a larger study to kind of confirm or, you know, to see if I could confirm these larger themes um, with a bigger audience. Um, and so that's where I kind of set out knowing I was like, no, what I'm finding is men's sexual desire is a lot more vulnerable, a lot more emotional, a lot more nuanced than what we typically talk about. Um, and so, yeah, so I set out to, to kind of include more men so that I could, a book needs to be, you know, to need, needs to resonate. So I wanted to see, I'm like, is it applicable to just a couple dozen men, a few hundred men? Um, and so my, my book talks about my experience, about over a decade of clinical experience, my dissertation, and then a larger study that I conducted online afterwards. And how large was that study? Um, that one included over 400 men. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think it can speak to, you know, I'm not trying to create a one size fits all, you know, I'm always interested in men's reactions, you know, that theme fits for me, that myth doesn't, you know, this is just kind of creating space to say, you know, are, are there more, is there more going on for men's desire than what we've been talking about? Cool. So um, before we take a quick break and get into your book and all the myths and everything, and I was just amazed of, of everything you wrote there and how well it was written. And what I love most about your book is after every myth, you did a little summary and it's like little cheat points that if you if you don't remember what she wrote they were all there but at the beginning of the book you talk about the conversation that changed everything mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um as i mentioned i started studying women's sexual desire and so that was kind of the path that i was going down and i hadn't decided what i was going to commit my dissertation research to at that stage um but i was with my office mate we were just kind of talking about relationships and sex as we're you know we tend to do um, and she just made a comment that she was at a, a dinner party or something like that. And her husband made a comment that, 
oh, I'm always in the mood to have sex. Like if she wants to, I'm definitely down. And she said to me that while she didn't confront him in the moment, she said, but wait a second, like you didn't want to have sex last weekend when I initiated. And like, you don't always want to have sex. Like that's a bit of an exaggeration. And so we just started talking about how many times do we hear that phrase? I'm always in the mood, always down to have sex. And how true is that really for, you know, for most men and for those of us women who are in relationships with men? Um, and so that was kind of the turning point for me where I thought, ah, I need to understand what's going on here. And did he, like, did you find out that he had a need to say that out loud? Is it a macho phrase that men just want to say, even if it's not true? Yeah, that's certainly one of the things that um, came out in my research is that men talk about how there is this, um, this stereotype that's out there and that there's kind of this um, pressure to fit into it, right? Like, what would it be like to say, sometimes I don't feel in the mood, sometimes I'm not so interested in sex, sometimes my wife approaches me and I say no. Like, there's just, we don't hear that quite as often. <laughs> not to say it's not true. In mm -hmm. fact, I think it's true for a lot of people in a lot of situations. But there is that idea of, you know, men are supposed to be this way, or at least we're supposed to talk this way kind of that, um, those expectations that show up a little bit more in that kind of quote unquote, like locker room type talk. Mm -hmm. So I'm the anomaly. I don't know. Baby. <laughs> because I say I'm, I'm horny, horny all, all, the, all time. the time. And I am. Well, you know, he tells me at least three times a day that he's horny. And well, we it, definitely have mismatched libido. No, but I say you're always yeah. horny. I'm the one who says you're always horny. Mm -hmm. You go, but I'm, I am. I'm horny, honey. Yeah. Well, no kidding. You're always horny. <laughs> I say I'm horngry. I'm hungry <laughs> and horny at the same time. <laughs> it happens. And, and David, and I think that's, necessarily abnormal, right? Like your experiences are experiences and humans vary, right? So this conversation is going to be talking about some of like the emotional parts of sexuality. I'd be curious for your feedback on that. Sometimes, you know, men are saying that there's pressure to kind of meet these stereotypes of having high sex drives. But I do also hear other men say, no, I do have a high sex right. drive. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with either. We just typically have a little bit more space to talk about when men's sex drive is high mm -hmm. and not as much space to talk about when it's maybe low or uh, diminished. Perfect. Well, this is a great point to take a quick break where Sarah, we're going to ask you to hang on for a second. We're going to do a quick shout out to one of our show sponsors. Uh, we want to remind everyone this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David. We're talking with author, sex researcher, and sex expert, Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray. So just stay there one second and we'll be right back after this commercial. So, you know, people have been asking us, what's changed after four years of doing the podcast? Well, a lot has. But to be honest, the orgasm gap still remains a challenge for many couples. You know what I'm talking about. Men tend to finish before their female partners. You've heard us talk about Promescent for years. Their urologist-developed FDA-compliant delay spray can help men last up to 64% longer without loss of sensation. And it's great because promescent is quickly absorbed into the penis and it doesn't transfer to your partner. And speaking of your partner, I think we can all agree that sometimes women, even when alone, still have challenges around reaching orgasm. So now, promescent has created a female arousal gel. I love it. It's a clitoral stimulant that she can rub into her clitoris for increased pleasure and a lot more satisfaction during pretty much any type of sexual activity that you can think of. Absolutely. So now they've got promescent delay spray for him and arousal gel for her. So basically, they're closing the orgasm gap on both sides. And remember to check out their amazing lubes as well. Yeah, trust us. Try these amazing products and you'll thank us later. Seriously, just write to us at ask at carolandavid.com and tell us how it went. 
So try Promescent today. Just go to the website www.promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Yeah, and now, and especially for a limited time, if you enter Sexy Lifestyle 15, you'll get 15% off every order. And remember, tell your friends too, that's Sexy Lifestyle 15 for 15% off. All right, we're back. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and uh, we're going to get continuing our discussion with Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray, all about her book, um, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. And um, your book is really laid out based on myths. Why, why, why did you go that route to write your book? So I think when we typically talk about men's sexual desire, we kind of default to the belief that men's sexual desire is high, constant, unwavering, um, that men are always interested in having sex. And the thing that perpetuates that is that as a society, we we see this, you know, sung about in songs, you know, there's, there's singers, rappers who talk about always being in the mood, you know, we're used to seeing images of men surrounded by women kind of implying like, I can't get enough women, I can't get enough sex. Um, There are, you know, socially, we are rewarded, you know, as like men are rewarded for being sexual. Um, You know, at high school levels, university levels, you know, we see men as being um, celebrated. The the cool guys are the ones who are having lots of sexual partners. Um, high five. Did you get laid? Whereas women more often, um, you know, maybe things are slowly changing, but, you know, women most often recall being shamed. I mean, we know the idea of slut shaming. Right. You don't have sex until you're in a really loving relationship. And if you quote unquote, give it away too easily, um, there, are, there are consequences. So we really have this reward system that encourages men to be open and expressive with their sexuality and women don't receive those same messages. So, so basically I, I think that, um, you know, we do have this idea that gets, you know, that we learn very early on about men's sexual desire that, you know, men are more free to express it, that men are rewarded for having more sexual partners, that there's this expectation that men's sexual desire is just there and strong. And so I just wanted to kind of start poking holes in it with, you know, empirical research that supports it and saying, you know what, maybe these myths, maybe this way that we talk about men's sexual desire is is not right. Maybe we need to kind of question if it fits for all men. And what would it be like to, um, you know, point out these holes in these stereotypes? So the book starts with the origin of myths. And mm-hmm. um, you talk about society's deep rooted misinformation. Is that something you found out? early on in your research? Yeah, well, I mean, starting out research, we always have to, you know, do our deep dive into what's already out there and what theories are out there. And so, um, you know, one of the things that grounds these um, stereotypes about men's sexual desire, you know, are some of these theories that I talk about. So the first one would be evolutionary theory. And evolutionary theory is complex, and I always summarize it in a very, you know, like, um, simplified way just to try to make a point. But, um, you know, evolutionary theory suggests that men are wired to spread their seed, that it's to their advantage to be ready to have sex with any female partner that is available. It gives him the best chance of procreation. And so according to evolutionary theory, men are, quote unquote, wired to have high sex drives, to be in the mood, to be ready. 
there's also theories that, you know, separate from what our biology might suggest is that um, kind of what I was saying before is there social norms that we say it's okay for men to be um, experiencing higher sex drives. We say it's okay and encouraged for men to, to be in the mood to, um, you know, pursue sex, to be the ones to push to the next level of sexual intimacy. And so there are a lot of reasons that are like, um, you know, explained from biology, explained from sociology that suggests that yes, men's desire is in fact high, unwavering, you know, that men are always down to have sex. And, and compared to women, it seems that uh, they're supposed to have a higher sex drive than women. Exactly. So it's not just that men's desire is supposed to be high or is or supposed to be high. I mean, those are two separate pieces, but also that it's supposed to be higher than women's. And so when we've got men and women in a relationship, we're much more used to considering the times that women aren't in the mood. I mean, that expression, not tonight, I have a, like a, yeah. a headache tonight. Um, you know, th- that's something that we're used to hearing is men or men being in the mood and their female partner saying, no, I'm not so much, or I have a lower sex drive. That's kind of our normal um, archetype for men, when men and women are together in relationships. Did you, did, did you have something like that growing up or did you always have a high sex drive? Mm. I don't even know. I didn't really compare because I didn't even discuss sex with my girlfriends. It wasn't something we talked about. Uh, we didn't mm-hmm. compare and, you know, we weren't in competition with each other. So I wouldn't say But you started having sex at a younger age. Well, at 15. But I think there's lots of girls who had sex at 15. But that's not was not a, a competition for me. It's not something we discussed afterwards. But was it something that you wanted to have? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it was my desire to have sex. But I was going to ask you about your evolutionary theory. And I know you have your founding uh, information where you put this out. My question is, were men supposed to always be in the mood because they were they were having sex with one woman or because they're having sex with multiple women? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's people who probably know a lot more about evolutionary theory than I do who, who may disagree. So I, I, I would leave that up to, to the actual experts on, on this theory. My understanding, however, is that it's about, you know, being ready to have sex with different partners, right? Women are, from an evolutionary standpoint, again, it's in their best interest to find a partner who's going to stay with them, help them rear the baby because they're pregnant for however long, I mean, for humans, nine months, um, and then help them kind of raise the baby once it's born. Men, however, can get a woman pregnant this day, another woman pregnant, you know, that afternoon, again, in theory, (laughs) Um, you know, and so it's in their best interest to be interested in having sex and seeing any partner that's available. Again, very simplified and a little crass way of approaching evolutionary theory, but that kind of gets the point across. Yeah, because I was thinking as you were speaking that women are only fertile, basically a small part of the month and that that's they, when men don't want to have sex <laughs> <laughs> well those that don't want to have babies but if they're built to procreate then then I was just thinking to myself then they're really only meant to have sex in that little window of opportunity kind of like what happens in the natural life uh, natural wilderness but if men are wanting to have sex all the time then obviously they're looking for the next fertile woman and then the next fertile woman so it just dawned mm-hmm. on me that probably they were swingers way back then <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, and some would argue like monogamy is relatively new. And so we are, you know, still kind of impacted by this longstanding history where we would have had more sexual partners. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you said you're swingers, but, you know, <laughs> monogamy is still, you know, alive and well yes, for many of yes, us. Yes. So. Cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's move on. And um, you have um, a section of your book called Men and Sex 101. Let's talk about the different stereotypes regarding men's sexual desire. Mm hmm. So um, the stereotypes um, for for men's sexual desire continue to be that, again, that men are always in the mood, right? That their desire is 
simple. It's straightforward, um, mainly physical in nature. Um, you know, men are looking to quote unquote, get off, you know, we don't talk about the emotional side of men's sexual desire, I don't find very often. Um, that turning them on is relatively easy, you know, just kind of, hey, baby, are you down to have sex? Yeah, done, maybe sometimes, but some men would say, you know what, it actually takes a lot more than that for me. We also talk about how men's sexual desire just kind of functions on its own, that it's not impacted by a lot of other things that we know impact women's desire. So we don't talk about how men's desire is impacted by relationship quality, age, stress, things that are going on at work, whether or not they're a father. Um, you know, we kind of talk about how men should be or are in the mood for sex, no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so there's a lot of factors and contextual pieces, um, you know, that that do impact men's desire. Um, but again, we just kind of talk about men's desires and kind of functioning in the silo and not impacted by all of these other pieces that um that are in our, our lives and our worlds, you know, emotionally and physically. Right. And of course, it's subject to change because things change in our body as we age, things change in our body as we go through different relationships, ups and downs in our moods. So it would kind of make sense that they can't constantly be, I mean, now that you're talking about it, it seems to make sense that men can't always be in the mood all the time. Why not? Well, I don't think so, honey. I am. Especially with a wife <laughs> like you who's so beautiful. Well, your body's changed over the years too. You you know, one of the things is you stop drinking because make sure that your erection is a lot stronger. Right. So you might be in the mood, but you also want to make sure you have quality sex. Uh-huh. So you're you're able to adjust for I that. I can have quality sex three or four times a day. <laughs> I don't think so, honey. I might not come three or four times a day, but <laughs> right. See, he's talking macho, and this is what we're going to dispel this myth. I can't wait. So I was going to bring up this this macho thing because Sarah writes about it in her book. Is is that something that men? feel they need to pound their chest and say, hey, you know. Look at me. Look I at think me. so, yeah. You know what? It's um, The thing that I heard more often was men um, challenging that, saying that they're aware that it's out there. The expectation is there. They would talk about how they've got friends who would talk that way, that they were skeptical, but they also were like, but that's what I hear. That's what it's supposed to be. And it's not just that it's something that exists out there, right? There's a kind of a social norm. Here's the macho expectation. The men in my research also talked about how they internalized it in some cases. Like, I should be in the mood. Like, I actually have to wrestle with um, my own expectations. If a woman, you know, my, my you know girlfriend, wife, like, approaches me for sex, and I'm not feeling it. Like men talk about how they say, well, what should I do here? Will she be disappointed? Will I disappoint myself? There's like this really deep internalization that some men described of what would it be like for me to say no? Um, you know, it, it kind of breaks apart from the expectations that I've been, you know, receiving my whole life. And, and it's kind of hard to admit, whoa, I don't know if I fit that mold. And I thought it was really interesting that men also talked about, you know, specifically, like, what would my wife or girlfriend, I mean, my research is, is primarily on heterosexual relationships, what would my wife or girlfriend think? Will she judge me? Because again, that expectation is not just what's expected of men, but how do we interact and what will women think about a man who's not in the mood? Will she take it personally? Will she take it as a reflection of her, like, like how attractive I am to her or how solid of a foundation our relationship is in right now? Now, and I'm sure a fear of rejection from that partner as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Now, does this machoism come from social media, from TV, from um, watching what 
call it the celebrities say a man how a man should behave or is it something that's genetic and and, and we're born with it um, I, I would say from my experience, it's it's very much a social construct. Um, you know, I think it is um, how men are portrayed in, in everything you just said, you know, music, TV shows, movies, you know, just the um, celebrities, <laughs> like, you know, social media, we, we that really is enforced on all levels. Um, and I, I would think I think things are already kind of shifting a little bit I think we're having better conversations about you know men's desire can be you know high and you know maybe you want to have sex multiple times a day to low like you know sex doesn't really interest me all that much and if we give more space to talk about that I think we'll see less of that pressure over time I also think it might be interesting to you know we only know so much about men's sexual desire in the first place but how much has it changed for you know millennials and gen z versus you know boomers like what's kind of already starting to evolve Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and i was kind of curious about your research was it uh, done um in different cultures do you have different races and different nationalities uh, background nationalities and different cultures or did you try and stick to a very similar um demographic demographic yeah that's the word yeah so um really great questions and really important questions the age range of my participants, um, you know, for my dissertation was 30 to 65. So I really wanted to kind of understand men who are like not university students, because I think so often we get that, you know, for psych class 101 or whatever. um, And how representative is that highly educated, often white, um, or the majority white. Life is not that complicated yet. So age range wise, it's it's 30 to 65. When I did my larger study online, it went down to it. 18 to 65, just to kind of open the gates just a little wider, just to see who would who would participate. With regards to the other demographics that you said, there was no criteria for, you know, race or country of origin or religion. Um, but it still tends to be a pretty um, Caucasian, that was the largest um, sample um, size was, was Caucasian men. Again, they are heterosexual. Um, they were mostly from Canada and the United States. Um, so there's a big need to continue exploring diversity in men's sexual orientation, um, ethnicity, culture, background. Um, you know, I think we really need to get um, deeper dives into these intersectionalities of, of who these men are. Well, you've got a lifetime of work ahead Absolutely. of you then. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're not going to go through all the myths in your book because we want our listeners out there to go out there and buy it because Sarah needs to feed her kids and pay her rent. <laughs> um, but why don't you talk um, a little bit about, you know, um, three of the most important myths that you feel uh, you wrote about in your book. Sure. Um, so I'll start by talking about um, this myth that men don't need to feel desired. Um, we have this idea that men are the ones who pursue. They're the ones that ask a woman out on a date. They're the ones who show up with flowers. They tell her she's beautiful. Um, they approach her for sex. Like that is the sexual script that we tend to have when men and women are partnered. Throughout my research, men made it clear spontaneously, and then I asked more directly just to better understand it, I want to feel desire too. <laughs> like I want to be, you know, in fact, sometimes objectified. Like I want my um, female partner to see how I look and comment on it. I want her to um, tell me I look cute. I want her to approach me. I want her to come and rub my back or give me a kiss or suggest that maybe we have sex tonight. 
Um, so men over the course of my research really spoke about how important it was for them to feel desired in return. And there were lots of ways that this could show up. It could be a compliment about their physical appearance. It could be, you know, their, their female partner coming up and giving their foot a rub. It could be giving them a kiss and it could be initiating sexual activity. The thing that I thought was so interesting is when I asked men, you know, does your partner do these things? Like, is this something that she knows is important to you? Some said yes, but the vast majority said no, (laughs) that this was something that they wanted a lot more. It really went against the grain. Um, It really shifted the dynamics between themselves and their partner. And almost all the men in my research said that there were things that they wanted their female partner to do more of to help them feel desired. So I thought that was just so fascinating, not just that we don't talk about it, but actually within each relationship or in at least many relationships, um, that dynamic is is still kind of in that more traditional sense of men making their their girlfriends and wives feel desired and not necessarily experiencing that in return. Right. I can remember a few years ago, and I don't remember exactly, Dave and I have been together for 15 years, and mm-hmm. maybe it was five years ago where we actually sat down and we were maybe going through a slow spell or something, and David said, I need to feel desired. I mm-hmm. want you to love me, love my body, want me. I have to know that you want me. And I was like so grateful that he told me this because I didn't mm-hmm. realize that in his mind, he needs to be wanted and loved and desired, and I need to show that to him. And of course, I did love him and want him and desire him, but I didn't show it the way he wanted to be, to to see it. And when we sat down and he asked for it, uh, it t- doesn't take much to do it. Like really, it's mm-hmm. very simple. If you do desire your man, let him know. And one, mm-hmm. one of the things we talk about on our show all the time is to have great sex, you need to talk about having great sex. And what you just said is, you know, and it's probably very prevalent out there in all couples, couples don't take enough time to talk and listen, right? Communicating goes both ways about what their partner's wants and needs are. And we had Dr. Justin Miller on our show from the Kinsey Institute, who did a huge study of 4,000 people all about fantasies. And the number one fantasy of Um, the majority of the people he spoke to was having a threesome. But he also Mm -hmm. found out that a majority of those people never told their partner that their fantasy was to have a threesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to communicate. And like to your point, Carol, like I think that's so key. I mean, the research, I can only speak to one piece. But when I talk about couples in my clinical practice, sometimes just having that language to be able to say, yes, I want to feel desired, like just being able to say it to say, oh, that's what it is. That's the word. That's what I'm looking for. More often than not, people have similar reactions to what you described, right? right? The woman says, oh, yeah, like that makes sense, right? Like this isn't easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting to hear you say it's easy because I think some people, some women find it easy. I have, however, talked to some women who the idea of expressing their sexuality first, right, the, the idea of approaching their, their 
man is not so easy. Maybe, yeah. Um, and, 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 and so it's just kind of acknowledging there's lots of different people out there. I love how sexually open the two of you are, but there are some people who haven't had that chance to really, um, you know, poke holes in some of those messages that they've received for decades right. of their life. Right. And considering, is it comfortable for me to say, oh, I have a sexual urge and I will approach you, that I will put that out there. I'm used to being pursued like I'm used to being like mm-hmm. waiting until he says he's ready mm-hmm. and that just doesn't do a whole lot of good in relationships right I mean that one-sided dynamic right. but it does take some people a bit more space to step into something that says oh yeah what are my sexual needs and do I feel comfortable expressing them do I feel comfortable sharing them with a partner even if that relationship's safe some people do actually struggle um, to rewrite those those right. dynamics and scripts that are so ingrained. Well, I hope that this sparks a dialogue with some couples to actually bring it up and talk about desire. Do you need to be desired? Do you want to be desired? And actually, women might not even realize that men have that need and have that want. Maybe not all men, but mm-hmm. I hope some people are listening and they'll bring Hell up yeah. the dialogue with their partner and say, <laughs> hey, can this help us? Because there's Me no... Too. Over time, your your relationship goes up and down, and it's good and bad, or sometimes it's just slow and fast. But when you're in a di- in a dip or in a slow of time, you have to kind of think, what could I do to get us out of talk, this? Talk, talk, talk about exactly. it. We have a couple, and they were talking about splitting up, and um, he said, you know, this is what's wrong, and all this stuff, and blah blah blah. And he says, you know, I think our marriage is over. And I said, there's there's always a chance to fix things. And you guys need to spend tons and tons of time talking about what's wrong, what's good, who feels um, what about what. And it's been now eight weeks, and they're in a much, much better place. And all they had to do was commit to talking to each other. Yeah, and it doesn't, not everything gets resolved, but you certainly can't give up until you've at least done that, at least talked about it. And sometimes, you know, you have these things rolling around your head that you're you're perceiving something that's not reality and when you talk to the person they say what are you a fucking idiot there's no way i would think about something like <laughs> right that. right exactly yeah you got to at least share and give your partner a chance to respond and there's a lot of things we kind of keep to ourselves and makes it pretty hard to get closer and more intimate and you know fix things mm-hmm. um you know if we're hoping our partner's reading our mind <laughs> yeah exactly all right so let's move on to another one of your favorite myths Um, So another uh, favorite myth is um, the rejection myth. And what I mean by that is, I think because we expect, again, the the sexual script is that men are the ones who initiate sex. There also is this underlying expectation or belief that, you know, you must expect to be turned down sometimes. If men are, you know, the ones with higher desire, there's this expectation that, you know, you'll approach your wife or girlfriend, Sometimes she won't be in the mood because, again, the expectation is her desire is lower than yours. That must be, you know, something you expect and not like a a tough pill to swallow. What struck me in my research is that men actually talked about how sex was not just this physical act. It was so much more. It was a way to connect. It was an emotional bid for connection. And so there was this vulnerability that happened in initiating sex. Um, where if their partner wasn't in the mood, they weren't just losing out on getting laid or that physical gratification. They were missing out on um, that deeper connection. They were saying like, I want to be close to you. I want to be close to to you in this way. Do you want me to? 
And so when she would say no, not just here and there, but especially on a more regular basis, men talked about how this really um, took a toll on their self-esteem, their um, confidence in themselves, their confidence in the relationship. And I think that's just a really important thing for us to talk about on a couple levels. One, there are always desire discrepancies in relationships, whichever way it goes, even if we have both high sex drives, there's going to be times where we don't want to have sex with our partner. And we should always feel that we can say no, right? Like that's a, that's a given, right? We can say no when we're not in our mood and we hope our partner respects that if we're in a safe relationship. However, the way that we say no, understanding why we're being approached by our partner for sexual activity, those are really important things to, to acknowledge. So, we feel very differently as women if our if our you know partner approaches us and we feel like you just are horny and you just want you know physical release and I just happen to be the closest or most socially appropriate outlet. That's not sexy. That doesn't make many people feel good. If we can kind of question, you know, is it that or are you actually trying to feel closer to me? Like, is this a way of us enhancing our relationship? Then even if we're not in the mood to have sex we can still maybe approach it as, oh, maybe instead of frustrated, I'm going to bat you away or roll my eyes or, you know, maybe we say, oh, you want to feel close to me. I don't know that I'm ready to have sex right now. Maybe later. Could we cuddle instead? Could we make out? I'll think about it. Maybe I'll be open to it later. But I just find that it's really interesting to kind of watch couples navigate, oh, like, am I kind of being dismissive? Did I think that you just wanted sex? Am I making assumptions about what you're after here? And what would it be like to accept that sex can be so much more than just that physical act? And maybe you want a lot more from this interaction than what I might have assumed. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. But also, it, perhaps the guy asking, uh, I want to have sex or I'm horny, honey, instead he just says, can we just get some, can we get some closeness here? If he actually learns how also to express why he wants to have sex, you know, I feel like getting closer to you, hon, can we just snuggle for a little bit? And maybe if it works out, we can have sex later. If not, you know, it's there. But um, I guess if he also suggests that he's looking for some closeness, then she might not reject him. That's um, a, a key piece in all of this. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, and in my book, I break it down into what both men and women need to do in order to kind of confront these myths, to, to kind of change the discourse on, on men's sexual desire. And it's not just on the woman to interpret and to assume that maybe there's more under the surface. That's part of it, right? Is there more happening here? Am I making assumptions? But the other side, absolutely, is how are men approaching women when they want sex? Are they coming at it kind of a little bit more hardened or a little bit more um, in that macho you know, in that macho voice? Yeah, no, because they're they're using their macho voice that they were taught, and it's not working out for them. And and so to kind of say, like, what am I really after here? And again, in in healthy relationships and longer term relationships and sexually positive relationships, there's usually space for all of the above, <laughs> you know, but I think on average, you know, if we actually consider, are you approaching saying, you know what, I really want to be close to you and feeling skin to skin contact, like really makes me feel close to you. Like maybe I feel lonely. Maybe I feel like we haven't connected. Like this would be so great. We could consider, is that something that I want to engage with? Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, more likely. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but if it is just, yeah, I feel really horny and you're like, where did that come from? Like, we haven't had a conversation all day. Like what's even going on? Mm -hmm. It might be easier to kind of say, I don't really get what that's about. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. We are going to take a break before we continue talking with Dr. Sarah Hunter Murray. Um, we're going to keep going uh, with some of the myths about her book. We're going to remind you, this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David. And coming up next is our segment, Great Sex Matters. But first, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors. And how ironic is that our sponsor is Hedonism 2 Resort in Jamaica, where we are right now. And loving it. We've been here since January 15th. We're having a great time. I don't know when we're going home, but eventually we'll get there. Um, You know, it's our favorite place to hang out naked on the beach. It's definitely the sexiest place on earth where you can be as mild or as wild as you like. And we've been broadcasting on location here sometimes naked um if you want come on down join us we're here uh, a couple more weeks months if um the airlines open up one of these days and they certainly will soon. Um, and you know we really feel safe and we're loving our away office um if you can work from home you can work here from hedo like we are all winter long so join us as we get naked on the beach go to the sexylifestyle.com click on the hedo link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever I'm doing extra talking today. I know, you can. thank you. I appreciate Normally some it. Of these things you say, I'm not used to them. <laughs> All right, we're back. This is the sexy lifestyle. We are Cal and David, and now it's time for our favorite part of the show, where we get to talk about great sex because well, great sex matters, and we all deserve it. We sure do. So, Sarah, one of the things that is so prominent in the world today is pornography. And we know, and we talk about it all the time, that pornography is um, entertainment. It is um, something that is not real life. And it's not supposed to be educational. Right. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit like watching The Fast and the Furious. You don't learn how to drive cars by watching that movie, but it's great entertainment. So in your research, did you find that men and women watch porn differently? Yeah, so... Um In my research, I can speak a bit to um, what I found about how men were talked about their relationship with pornography. Um, And I can kind of talk about how that applies to what I understand about women's um, experiences. I I just want to clarify that I haven't actually done research on how women view pornography myself. But um, the thing that I thought was really interesting is, is to your point, I mean, Pornography is out there. It is being consumed at, you know, ravenous paces. Like people are watching a lot of porn. Um, I think the thing we have to question is why are we watching? What are people getting out out of it? And what assumptions are we making about that? Um, When men are watching pornography, again, we're talking about broad strokes. There's lots of reasons to watch. You know, I just maybe felt horny. My partner wasn't interested. The thing that I think a lot of women struggle with though is worrying when their um you know their male partner is watching porn that he prefers it that if he's not having sex with her or if he's got a low sex drive it's because he's watching a lot of porn um that porn can take away from relationship quality and what i thought was just interesting is that you know the men in my research would often talk about how you know they liked porn i mean it's enjoyable like you said it's like watching a fun or exciting movie it's erotic it helps us you know fantasize or, or something to masturbate to um but i just thought it was interesting how men kind of talked about how their relationship with porn was like a little bit more over here. Like it was a little bit more of a supplement versus kind of the main event. And that they kind of felt sometimes that their female partner worried about their use of porn when for them, it was just a way to kind of fantasize, have this little extra sexual encounter when it was, you know, 
a little longer between sexual encounters than they were comfortable with. It was a way for them to express their sexuality and experience those um, fantasies, you know, in their own world and then kind of come back to their partner. What we know about research, though, is that sometimes if men are watching a lot of porn alone, it can be to their detriment. It can be because, you know, my partner's not interested and I'm feeling a bit lonely and I'm having to rely on porn a little bit more than I'm comfortable with. We also know that there's some situations where men are watching porn alone and um, and that's kind of pulling them away from their partner. They might kind of go a little bit more into that rabbit hole and they spend more time online and it makes them less vulnerable and able to connect with their partner. In contrast, what I think is really interesting is that women watching porn on their own, again, there's variations here, but tends to be less often associated with negative relationship and sexual um, outcomes. It tends to be associated with actually letting women um, explore their sexuality and having more positive outcomes on their sexual experience and also on their relationship. Perhaps they're exploring their sexuality in different ways, kind of learning more ideas, um, embracing those those desires and wants, and it, and it kind of comes back in a positive way into relationships. Very cool. That's interesting. So while we're on porn and we're on her and we're on her playing with herself, you have um, a, a piece of one of the myths where you talk about her, act, her orgasm and his achievement. Can you just mm -hmm. go a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, so um, we talk about how important it is for women to experience sexual pleasure and, you know, an orgasm is kind of one of the things we talk about when we talk about pleasure. It's not the only way of experiencing pleasure, of course. In fact, we can put a lot of um, emphasis on it where it becomes um, the goal and we kind of lose out when turns, putting pressure on ourselves to have an orgasm. Um, but the language that we still use is that, you know, someone is given an orgasm <laughs> that again in this kind of heterosexual context that men are responsible for giving their female partner an orgasm and if she has one that's like woohoo i gave her an orgasm and if she doesn't have one oh what did i do wrong and we talk about how women sometimes fake orgasms to make their male partner feel better. I don't want him to take a hit to his ego. I don't want him to think he's not a good lover. I don't want him to think that he's not satisfying me. But there is research to suggest that men do take their female partner's pleasure and particularly orgasm as a sign of um, his achievement and his masculinity. Wow, that was interesting. So one of the things that I just came to mind when you were talking is that one of the myths out there is that having sex or giving sex to your partner, which sometimes is what we, we call it, is that um, foreplay in itself is sex. And so a lot of times women will orgasm during foreplay because they want stimulation on their clitoris and not necessarily during penetration. But we still refer to it as foreplay and not sex. And what's your, what is your I advice on that? <laughs> Um, I, I think that's a great point. I think when we talk about sex, the you know most of us, again, especially if there's a man and a woman together, we're thinking about penetration. And yes, it, you know, most women, um, the vast majority of women, you know, need clitoral stimulation. Oral sex is a great way to to receive that, as is clitoral stimulation during penetration. But you know, a lot of the things that provide pleasure are quote-unquote foreplay and so what would it look like to your point if we we expanded our definition of sex if we stopped calling it foreplay and called all of it sex yeah. um you know i think it could help women experience more pleasure i think it could help us all experience more pleasure quite frankly um i think there's uh, a lot to be said for just expanding that definition mm -hmm. all right well we're coming to the end of the show and before we get into our final advice 
I have to ask you one question because we've been talking a lot about sex and you talk about it in your book. Is no sex better than bad sex? Mm-hmm. Great question. No sex is hard for a lot of people. Um, you know, there's people who identify as asexual or, you know, they're not interested in having sex. And, and, and you know, if you don't want to be having sex and you're in a situation where, you know, you're either on your own or with your partner who also doesn't want sex, that's just A-OK. Bad sex, however, <laughs> can do a lot of harm. I mean, it can be like bad sex can look a lot of different ways, right? It can be I'm agreeing to have sex with you, but there's no part of me that's really excited about it. Mm. I'm kind of feeling lackluster the whole time, maybe getting close to feelings like kind of yucky feelings, even again, if it's consensual, the partner who wants sex, who has a partner who agrees to have sex with them for you know, maybe because they feel it's their obligation or because they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings. Most of us can tell if our partner is not into it. And and that's something, you know, that came out in my research as well is, is men talking about, I know when my partner is into it. And it's so important to me that she is. I am not looking just to get off. If that's what I was wanting, I could go masturbate. Exactly. I could go watch porn. Yeah. I want to connect with her. And so the damage that can happen for both parties when we're agreeing to have sex that's not really wanted, we get kind of in our heads. We can feel you know, down about ourselves. We can feel like our partner doesn't really care about our wants. You know, the, you know, wanting to feel desired you know, is, is not there. Like all these really important things start falling by the wayside. Um, so I don't know if it's a clear cut, you know, never have bad sex. Cause I think sometimes it just, sometimes it, it just happens. happens. Yeah, it right. yeah. Sometimes we just have like mediocre yeah. sex. Sometimes it starts great. And then we kind of get off, you know, there's, there's going to be a lots of different ways that sex shows up, but I think we do need to kind of question like, what is our motivation for having sex? And would we be better off not having sex today and waiting until we're more connected or on the same page or, you know, both of our needs are being met. Um, you know, the idea of just throwing our partner a bone, I mean, again, in a healthy relationship, like maybe every now and then we feel motivated <laughs> in our partner's needs, you know, but ongoing, I think that can take a toll on, on both parties. And sometimes it happens that you do get started having sex and you weren't really in the mood, but it actually comes out that oh, you start getting in the mood, especially for women where their arousal takes a little bit of time to come along mm-hmm. and then they start getting in the mood and it turns out to be great yeah, after and all. that deep, sexy voice of yours is getting me in the mood. So, Sarah, we're at the end of our show. Uh, now you get some... A minute to tell us some some final advice so the question today is what are the two most important things that today's modern male needs to do or remember to ensure they have a strong and lasting relationship so my best advice here would just be to question what is expected of me what are the shoulds around my sexuality and do they truly fit for me or do I want to express them a little bit differently So just even questioning which stereotypes out there are, you know, expected for men, how are men supposed to express their sexuality? Like, let's just at least be aware of what those are. Um, And then we can kind of decide slowly but surely, does this fit for me or do I want to maybe do something a little bit differently? Sarah, that was absolutely amazing. Thanks so much for sharing all that great information. Why don't you take a minute and tell everyone how they can find your work online, social media, your website, and of course, where they can find and buy this amazing book. 
Um, so my website is www.sarahuntermurray.com. All my information is there. I'm on Twitter at Sex Doctor Sarah, um, and you can buy my book, Not Always in the Mood: The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships, um, at anywhere that you buy your books. Um, <laughs> so it should be uh, Amazon, your local bookstores, um, and then you can find the links on my website as well. Fantastic! And if you missed any of that information, just go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests has their own guest page with all their information. Sarah's book is going to be up there with the click through to buy it wherever you like. And you can even contact them if you have any questions about their book or you have questions about sexuality. This is a lot for me to read. I know, baby, but my voice is not good. All right. Well, we're learning more and more every week with all our amazing sexpert guests. We hope you do too. If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolandavid.com. And please, please, please remember to stay safe and healthy and follow all the suggested protocols issued by your local health authorities. Wash your hands, avoid touching your face, practice social distancing, and please wear a mask. And when your turn comes up, please go get vaccinated. All right, that's it. We made it through the show with two hosts who have very hoarse throats. Carol, who has the phone sex voice. Uh, phone sex. Okay, phone that's sex. my new uh, my new vocation. And what an amazing show with Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you both. And every day, week we like thanking all our guests for being there week in and week out. Join us again next time for another hour of The Sexy sexy lifestyle talking about sex sexuality sexual health and pleasure and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy healthy and always horny well that's it for our show today carol and i send you lots of love and great sex please stay safe and of course stay sexy everyone until next time Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever. 